are in the book of Hebrews, and last week we finished most of chapter 4, and what we've done so far is chapter 1 established that Yeshua was the heir of God, and that he was higher than angels. Then the next thing that got established is Yeshua is human and a man, and therefore we're his brothers. And then the next thing that got established is since God gave dominion to mankind at the creation and it was never revoked, Yeshua has to be a man in order to take dominion himself. So all of that got established in the first three chapters. He's the heir of God, he's higher than the angels, he's a man, we're his brothers, and as a man he is eligible to be king and to take possession of the place. So then we went into an aside, if you will, talking about the generation that died in the wilderness. And the idea there was that that generation had essentially the same gospel that we have, but they didn't mix that gospel with faith. Hence, God got chapped with them, and they died in the wilderness. So that's sort of where we are now. And this is obviously written to Hebrews. So it's written to people who know scripture. So there's a lot of stuff that just gets referred to and he just slams right on by it because he's not aiming it at Gentiles. You know, Paul has got the Gentile franchise. So Paul's letters have got a lot more explanation of what's going on than Peter's letters do or the book of Hebrews does because the assumption is that the audience knows the scriptures. So now we are going to start the process of establishing that he's the high priest. Okay, everybody got the layout of the book so far. Now, the business with the high priest is going to be broken up into two parts. It's going to be introduced tonight, and then it's going to be fleshed out next time. So, he's going to be introduced as the high priest, but he's going to be introduced as the high priest in the context of him being a brother to us going to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about him being a priest of a different order and going up into the heavenly and so forth. We probably won't get that far tonight. So we got through Hebrews 4 and verse 13 last time. So now we're going to pick it up at verse 14 because we have a new subject being introduced. So verse 14, since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Yeshua, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. By the way, that let us hold fast our confession is a repeated theme after each one of these subject blocks. Let us hold fast to our confession. In other words, we need to mix our understanding with faith in order for all this to work. So, 14 again. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Yeshua, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what we've done up till now is establish that Yeshua is one of us. So this leads off with, because he is one of us, 
he is able to understand us. In other words, he's a high priest who understands us. And one of the things that the rabbis talk about Aaron is Aaron was a very understanding person. That was one of his strengths as he empathized with people. There's sort of a couple ways you can go about being a pastor or a priest. One of the ways is you can be very strict in your interpretation of rules. And boy, this is black and that's white. And if you're over here, you're condemned. If you're over there, you're okay. That is not what's being said here. What's being said here is that he understands us and empathizes with us. And we're going to develop that idea here in chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So what's obviously being said there, first thing is a priest is an intermediary between people and God. That's his job. And he does lots of things, but what's being emphasized here is he offers sacrifices for sin. And the deal is a priest is chosen from among men. And the idea there is Yeshua also being a man qualifies to be a priest, as well as the Son of God, as well as the last Adam, as well as the King of the Earth, etc. So priests are chosen from among men because what they have to do is represent men before God. And if they don't understand men, they can't do a very good job of representing them. Now what he's going to do is he's going to establish the difference between Yeshua as a priest and Aaron as a priest. They're both men. They both represent men before God. But Aaron has got to bring a sacrifice for his own sin, whereas Yeshua does not. But he is in all other respects our brother. He is in all other respects human just like we are. And he, in all other respects, understands what we're going through. And he is, in all other respects, able to deal gently with us as Aaron would deal gently with us. And so he understands the attractiveness of the world, and he understands the cleverness of Satan. And he can deal gently with us because he himself has been tempted. And the fact that he was stronger than we are doesn't negate him being able to understand us. And the other part of that, by the way, is no one gets to choose to be a priest. In order to be a priest, you have to be of the line chosen by God, and God chose the sons of Aaron. And you can be as talented and as godly and as pious and everything else as anything, but if your daddy was not Aaron, you can't be a priest because God didn't choose you to be a priest. Similarly, Yeshua is also a priest because of God's choosing. Everybody see the parallelisms we're drawing here? Then I'm going to reread verse 4 and then move on. So chapter 5, verse 4 again. And no one takes this honor for himself, 
but only when called by God, just as Aaron would. So also Messiah did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son today, I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the argument here is, of course, Aaron was chosen by God, and priests have to be male descendants of Aaron. They didn't apply for the job. They didn't fill out a resume. It's just God says, you guys are the priests, and the priesthood will pass down through your sons. Likewise, it is saying here that Yeshua was also chosen by God. And it's going back to two places. The first quotation, you are my son today, I have begotten you, is from Psalm 2. And remember, we went through Psalm 2 during the first hour of our book of Hebrews. It's a conversation in three parts between the Father, the Son, and the narrator, who I'm asserting is the Holy Spirit. So now, in the second quotation, which is in verse 6, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a quotation from Psalm 110. And so let's go over to Psalm 110 and read it in its entirety. And by the way, this is marked as a Psalm of David. Yeshua uses this psalm during one incident when he's duking it out with the Pharisees. He specifically says, uh, hey guys, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, uh, if David called him Lord, who is his descendant, what does that make him? So this is a conversation that Yeshua has with the Pharisees. David calls his descendant Lord. Well, wait a minute. The way things work is the Father is above the Son. And so for the Father to call his descendant Lord must mean that there's something else going on here. How do you guys explain that? And of course, they stall and stutter and have a brain freeze and they can't explain. So Psalm 110 again. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this is clearly a prophetic psalm. And as I say, Yeshua uses it when he's slapping the Pharisees around. But the part we're interested in, which the writer of Hebrews is starting from, is verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, David was not a priest. So whoever is being spoken of here is going to be a descendant of David. And he is also going to be designated as a priest by God. But it's going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek as opposed to a priest after the order of Aaron. The writer of Hebrews is going to now go on a riff 
about being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The order is important here because the normal priesthood is, of course, after the order of Aaron. So, now we're back to Hebrews, and I'm going to pick it up in chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Yeshua offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we're going back to this idea that he is fully human. So in his humanity, he called out to his father, and, and as somebody said earlier this evening, if this cup can pass from me, I would really rather not do this. But he was obedient to his father, and because of his obedience and because of his suffering, as a high priest, he is able to understand us. That's sort of the whole gist, if you will, of this chapter 5, is he is one of us, he is our brother, he is also our high priest, but he is able to understand everything we go through because he has had to suffer and he has been tempted. All right, so now verse 11, um, chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. No joke. And I can remember when I was first starting in this stuff some 20 years ago, I was on an online discussion group of prophecy with a bunch of Christians. And I was just baby brand new in messianic stuff, mostly still Episcopalian. And these guys were devout, they were serious, and they knew their Bible. I admire them greatly. And their understanding of Hebrews is very different from my understanding of Hebrews now. And I was in no real position to argue with them because I didn't understand it any better than they did. But as I go through this and I read it now, it has a very different meaning to me than what it had in those discussions 20-some-odd years ago. And as I say, these were people who cared very much. Things like the order of priesthood, they were on the page of the priesthood is done away with. He's the only priest now. Doing any kind of sacrifice after this is an insult to the blood of Yeshua. They go to the place later on, we'll get to, where a will is not established until the death of the testator. Completely different understanding of that. I mean, just all sorts of stuff. The Torah has been done away with. All of that kind of stuff is their understanding of the book of Hebrews. I don't understand any of it that way. And as we get to those places, I will explain why I don't. I'm not looking down on these people. As I said, they care very much. They take it very seriously. They studied the scriptures hard themselves. But I believe that their understanding is simply incorrect. It's written to people who understand Torah. And if you come to it from a position of understanding Torah, you get a completely different understanding than you do if you come to it from a position of started out in the book of John and never gotten very far out of the Old Testament. Now, don't get me wrong. They, they knew the Old Testament, too. I'm not suggesting they didn't. But they came to it from a position of, I came into this, somebody gave me the book of John, handed it to me grace first, 
and said all that other stuff is done away with. So understand that you get a completely different understanding when you come to it from a position of Torah. So anyway, back to verse 11 now, Hebrews 5.11. About this we have much to say, but it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. The basic principles of the oracles of God, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So what he's saying to these Hebrews is, you guys know Torah, but you don't see the Messiah. Back up. You do see the Messiah, but you don't see that this guy, Yeshua, is the Messiah. That's what you don't see. And so what I'm doing is I'm teaching you ABCs when we really should be having a conversation at X, Y, and Z. But you don't see it, so I'm having to teach you guys how to suck eggs, and you really should understand this. On to chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Messiah and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. So what he's saying is, guys, you already know all this stuff. I'm not going to say it again. And so verse 3, And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tested the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Right. Your Christian friends will camp out there. They will go to that place and they will say, the Jews rejected God. They rejected Messiah. Therefore. And I don't read it that way. What I read it as, if you understand what's going on with Messiah, and then you reject him, then there is no repentance. He has just said, you guys don't understand. He said, hey, guys, I'm having to feed you milk. And what he's saying then is, if you come to an understanding of what's going on here, and then you reject Yeshua, then there's no way back because it's kind of important to the Christian understanding of this book and the Christian understanding of the position of Hebrews or Jews. And as I have said many times, you have got devout Jews who for really good scriptural reasons do not believe that this guy Yeshua was the Messiah. But they do have a worship relationship with God. They are doing their level best as they understand it to worship God and to do what God would have them do. But they don't see this Jesus guy as the Messiah. And so what I'm saying is this particular chapter is saying of those people, they're really still on milk and they haven't got an understanding that would lead them to reject Yeshua in a knowledgeable way. Their rejection of Yeshua is based on their understanding of Scripture. And they don't see it the way the writer of Hebrews sees it and the way we see it. 
they are not in rebellion against God. They are simply saying, this guy Jesus doesn't fit the criterion as I understand Scripture. In other words, if you understand that he is truly who he is, that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he is your sacrifice for your sin, and then you thumb your nose, then we have a problem. You've experienced the Holy Spirit, you've experienced the gifts of the Spirit, you've recognized that Yeshua is the Son of God. If at that point you walk away, there's no hope for you. As I understand it, there's going to be a judgment. And you're going to be judged based on your works, that's what it says. And you're going to be given, I think, an opportunity if you have not already made your decision. Because if nothing else, you've got people who have never heard the gospel. They're going to be, I believe, given an opportunity. But again, this is genealogy. And lots of the church thinks I'm wrong. So come to your own conclusion. Go back to 511. About this we have much to say, but it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. I meant to mention that. One of the things that happens in the process of exile is God closes the book, God blinds the seers and, and stops the ears of the wise. So the people in your society that should be able to interpret the word of God as well as the Word of God itself, gets shut down when you're about to go into exile. So that happens in Isaiah chapter 6, for example. When Isaiah says, send me, and what should I tell them? And God says, tell them so that they will not understand and will not turn and be healed because, parenthesis, they're going into exile. The generation here at the time of Yeshua is also going into exile. In 70 A.D., 40 years after the crucifixion of Yeshua, Israel gets sanded back off and the Jews go back into exile. So one of the things that I can see is going on here is this blinding and stopping the ears and closing the book as part of the process of exile, which is laid out in Isaiah 29. So what whoever wrote Hebrews is doing here is saying, guys, you should be able to understand this but you've grown dull. And if you take that in the context of Isaiah chapter 6, and we understand historically that this group is going into exile, you can see how they don't understand. All right, I'm not going to finish chapter 6. I want to get through verse 12. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 7. I'm in chapter 6, verse 7. Heretofore in, in chapter 6, we've talked about those who have moved past the basic doctrines, the elementary doctrines, and have tasted the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, and the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, they are crucifying the Son of God again, and there is no hope for them. So now in verse 7, for a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. So he's now equating people who have received the Holy Spirit to a land who has drunk rain and is bringing forth a useful crop. So verse 7 again, for a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it 
and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So what he's saying is if you have a blessed and fruitful land that has been planted with a crop and received the rain from God and so forth, and all it does is produce thorns and thistles, then it's only useful to be burned. So that is by analogy as to what he's talking about previously about those who have received the gifts of the Spirit and then fall away. Verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. So now he's talking to Hebrews who are not Messianic Jews. And he's saying, you guys are doing good works. And God is not so unjust as to overlook those good works. And the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. So remember at the great white throne judgment, what are you going to be judged on? Your works. Verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of the hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I'm going to stop there, because we're going to now go on to a riff about Abraham, and then we're going to go into a deeper discussion about Melchizedek. So we'll sort of have a, a good place to break here.